Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. From contact-free transaction etiquette at the Starbucks drive-thru to McDonald's contorting to accommodate hungry truckers across America, the pandemic of 2020 is suddenly and violently reinventing what we know as fast food. It's forcing countless sit-down restaurants to figure out curbside, how much they rely on gig economy workers, and everyone in the biz is reassessing wages and the lack of paid sick leave. Restaurants, it turns out, are systemically important. So now what? Stay with us. Full Disclosure airs on NPR member station VPM News, using the power of media to educate, inspire, and entertain. Follow us on Twitter at Full D Radio and subscribe on Apple Podcasts at FullDRadio.com. Joining me from New York is Adam Chandler. He's a journalist and author who authored uh, one of my favorite books of 2019, Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom. It was named an NPR favorite book of 2019, an Amazon Best Book of the Year, and a Smithsonian Best Food Book of 2019. Adam was previously a staff writer at The Atlantic. You've seen his byline in The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, The Washington Post, Slate, New York Magazine, Texas Monthly. Sir, have you ever flipped burgers? I have not flipped burgers. I've always been more of a, a, a cocktail mixer and beer guy. Uh, that's the extent of, of my, uh, my service experience. So you know I fanboyed up and down this book when you sent it to me, but it was really in sharp relief over the past two weeks of kind of um, the world changing with the CV-19 pandemic. And I'm noticing that all of these places who previously were in the fast casual bucket or casual dining bucket are contorting to suddenly become drive-through type businesses. And if anything, it's become a systemically important uh, business, as you kind of hinted at in the book before you had any idea of the pandemic. Right. There's there's something extremely normal and, and sort of uh, unremarkable about going through the drive-through. It's this quintessential American experience. But you know, in the last 15 or 20 years, it's become something that people have turned away from. And now we're suddenly seeing this this really uh, intense return to it because all of the things that kind of made it unseemly or aesthetically um, displeasing are, are, are sort of things that we, we like about it. Again, the convenience, the, the actual distance, it's important for us now. You know, the one anecdote from your book that kept coming to mind was the uh, 1992 Rodney King uh, race riots. Uh, in L.A., uh, you remember the scene, Koreatown, people with shotguns on their roofs and everything. In the book, you noticed, um, <laughs> wow, despite the six-day upheaval that laid waste to hundreds of black and minority-owned stores, not one of the five McDonald's in the five-square-mile riot and fire zone was defaced or destroyed. Writer Edwin Rheingold described the scene following the upheaval. Within hours after the curfew was lifted, all South Central's golden arches were back up and running, feeding firefighters, police, and the National Guard troops, as well as burnt-out citizens. The St. Thomas Aquinas Elementary School, with 300 hungry students and no utilities, called for lunches and got them free, with delivery to boot. That's right. And similarly, you know, I'm up and down Broad Street and, and, and the big you know, commercial corridors. Every city has one of these with 20,000 golden arches. And you notice this week that they even tried McDonald's to separate, to socially distant the golden arches. The The drive through line is really kind of around the block and into the parking lot. Right. Every, every drive through I've passed in the last couple of weeks, but particularly the last few days, the line has been pretty extensive. It's really wild to see it. It's, it's surreal. And then we do notice the big stats across the restaurant industry that bookings have kind of fallen off a cliff. Um, 
uh, you know, as LinkedIn put it, restaurants face the historic reckoning with forced closures sweeping the nation. There's an estimated five to seven million jobs that are going to be lost over the next three months, according to the National Restaurant Association. And sales are expected to decline north of, what, $230 billion for an industry that relies on service and community to adapt and contort in a time of social distancing. And you're seeing that real time. I can tell you that I was out on said boulevard today and one of these restaurants that is exclusively uh, sit down dining puts up a, a a triage tent outside with a person in a in an N95 mask bringing out contactless bags of uh of goodness of family sized goodness for you to take home you're not swiping any sort of credit card you're calling it in in advance. Uh, all of them have made various peas, uh, appeals on social media. If you go on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook this week, this is a matter of uh, you know, life or death for them. I mean, either they can or cannot ride this out over the next however many months this grips the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of those things that really, you see the adaptation happening in real time. And, and it's um, these are these are things that usually take months and years to sort of develop if you're going to, you know, enact a new platform, if you're going to have a new sort of order system put in place. And you are seeing, you know, free jazz basically is what we're looking at right now in the restaurant industry, just trying to make make it happen as quickly as possible to to keep jobs and to keep people fed and to keep communities running. It's it's really um, It's really kind of a big magic trick they're trying to pull off right now. Adam, we had Ron Sheikh, he's the founder and former CEO of Panera Bread, a very successful fast casual concept that's gone on to become a, a venture capitalist in the restaurant industry. He was ahead of his time in deciding maybe four or five years ago that a concept like Panera, which was already a step up from fast food, you saw uh, you know, ceramic bowls and, and silverware and whatnot had to adapt or die, had to put in drive-throughs, had to provide for delivery. And he was even in advance of this entire boom in, in you know, DoorDash and Postmates. And, you know, time was that it would just have been prohibitively difficult for a restaurant to contract with all of these various gig working uh, platforms. Now it's kind of it, it's especially demanded, especially particularly in this crisis. You have to be on one of these platforms. It's not exactly helpful to your margins. Uh, it's not exactly helpful to your customer service control when people complain that the driver isn't there and you don't really have control over that entire interaction. But it is the state of the biz, right? It's also kind of counterintuitive to how you eat the food. You know, you, you, French fries or or even you know. A salad from Panera. These are things that aren't meant to to, to travel distances and, and sort of wait to eat. You need to get at it right away, or else the thing's going to kind of collapse under its own weight. So um, yeah, it really is a surprise that this has become a standard part of the experience. But it really it really is necessary. This is how this is how people are eating even before there was uh, self isolation and social distancing. This was something that people were. We're sort of leaning toward um, the ultimate convenience, the uh, super fast timing, having the capacity to order on an app and have it delivered to you, even if it is, you know, a plate of nachos that will self-destruct in 10 minutes. You know, if you get it in seven, you have three minutes still, you know. How do they afford to do this? How do they afford to partner with uh, gig drivers. I was always under the impression that this is a, a out of necessity a super high volume business. The margins aren't great shakes. You have uh, epic employee turnover, as you noted in the book. 
Uh, these are threats to the business. And it, was it was it kind of the onset of Amazon Prime and this expectation that there's free shipping on everything or that anything can be shipped? And by the way, we're also talking about grocery stores. We're talking about CVS. We're talking about anything right now can be delivered. This is this is kind of bringing in the restaurant dining room experience or the drive through experience at the era of the primacy of on demand. Right. Once you introduce one day shipping or even same day shipping or same hour shipping uh, to the equation, it really takes over as an expectation of what consumers want. And places have to adapt. All kinds of businesses have to sort of make this calculation that we're going to try this out. And all these third party platforms are, are eager to get their business. So they cut special deals, they have specific partnerships, and um, I'm sure in some ways they lose money on it. You know, the, the, some of the cost gets passed on to the consumer who's paying a delivery fee or a convenience fee, but um, it's all in the service of trying to gain a foothold into, uh, into a market that's growing very quickly. This is something that only a couple years ago seemed not exactly like the most obvious part of the business model for fast food and, and quick service restaurants. And so what happens, though, as an extension of this is if you look at a traditional uh, fast food restaurant or a quick service restaurant, suppose you're a Panera and you put in the uh, the drive through you have delivery available and you're what, whatever. I think they used to call it in retail, what, omni-channel? Right. Uh, at some point, the physical infrastructure itself becomes an albatross. I'm thinking about all of these Applebee's and Chili's and, and you know, 1990s popular concepts that for the time being seem to have way too much infrastructure and overhead for a primarily carry-out centric business. Right. And it's also kind of, if you think about it from a consumer standpoint, can you imagine if you're waiting for what, you know, your blooming onion and the reason you're waiting a little bit longer is because somebody else who ordered from their couch is having their meal prepared for delivery, um, you know, within the same space, within the same kitchen um, that a driver is going to pick up and take somewhere else. It really, it kind of flies in the face of what it, what it means to have um, a loyal consumer base if you are you know, staggering in these orders from other places. It, it, it extends to fast food too. If you look at when you go into a, a McDonald's store and you see a line, a special line for Uber drivers um, or DoorDash to pick up items and take them out into the world, uh, knowing that the kitchen's also preparing food that is not for people who are dining in, it hurts a little bit, right? To, to think that you're, you're being de- deprioritized because there are people um, sitting on their couches ordering ordering the food as well. Right. According to the NPD group, which uh, looks at food industry trends, the $27 billion online ordering market is the fastest growing source of restaurant sales in the U.S. Digital orders, while uh, as of 2019 still accounting for just 5% of all restaurant orders, were growing some 20% each year. Restaurant visits themselves, which used to be bread and butter, meanwhile, are remaining mostly flat. And we know down is the new flat in that. Now, take me back to McDonald's. Take me back to Wendy's. Take me back to you know, the, the true fast food trenches. How in the world does... I mean, what was supposed to be embedded as a kind of a fail-safe to protect these people was, was that... I mean, if the ticket itself is not enormous, who the hell is going to tack on 5 or $10 on a McDonald's order of $25? It's a strange sort of upshot of, of the you know of the consumer uh, the consumer landscape the the culinary landscape that people are willing to pay to not have to leave 
their houses to go pick something up, especially in urban centers, but anywhere basically to, to not have to go out is, is the height of luxury. And if you're going to be tipping a driver on delivery anyway, you know, a, a service fee doesn't necessarily seem like that big of an ask. It, it is weird. Uh, it is weird to order, you know, a $10 combo meal um, with a couple of sides and then basically double that cost by having it delivered to you. Um, but for whatever reason, people are curious enough to try it out and um, are happy enough to make it part of their habit. I thought that was exclusively the province of, of uh, frat guys getting stoned at three in the morning, <laughs> you know, where you pull the you pull the purchases or you do it as a kind of a dormitory purchase. And that's where the economies make sense. But we see it time and again that McDonald's tells us Uber Eats is such a significant part of the business. Right. It's really a surprise. Where I, I guess it's the Netflix and chill of America where we're all kind of preferring to, to pay for the convenience of not having to go out. And um, yeah, it, it really is a, a frat boy aesthetic that's kind of gone national in an unexpected way. But I find, Adam, that the small business, the mom and pop owner that might have one or two or three restaurants necessarily has a love-hate relationship with the delivery services. That, you know, the bigger you are, obviously, um, you are much more valuable as a Chipotle to a Postmates than a kind of a mom and pop taqueria. Um, you know, Chipotle can kind of dictate its terms. It has the Walmart economies, the Walmart volume. Uh, it can, it can, it can be much more persuasive in terms of the cut it dictates. But if you're a mom and pop business and you're looking to compete, you know, a mom and pop taqueria, let's say Burritoville in New York, you have to, you know, sometimes seed what thirty percent of the ticket to some of these delivery services. Absolutely, it's it's a terrible system for for smaller restaurants and. It's really surreal to go into uh, some of these places that you you only order delivery from and, and see it in real life. And sometimes they'll actually have little signs that say, you know, we developed our own internal online ordering system or website order from us and we'll give you 10% off. They'd rather take a 10% hit on every single order online than pay the 25 to 30% for, for Seamless. And that is, you know, a real business agony. And if you talk to restaurant owners about this, um, you know, it's almost like the, you, they need to be lying down on a couch to talk to you about it because it, it mm-hmm. actually is so uh, frustrating and, and enraging to to be competing um, just to have good placement in a you know in a seamless ecosystem to to receive the orders in the first place. It really doesn't speak to what restaurants are supposed to be, which are these you know these community hubs, these places that that nourish us and, you know, bring us all together. Um, it's the opposite of that now. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You're listening to Adam Chandler. He was a formerly a staff writer with The Atlantic. The book, one of my favorites, is Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom. And Adam has been recalculating various statistics and perspectives and trying to net present value and extrapolate forward with this, uh, you know, enormous sea change that's going on in the restaurant industry amid the time of, of coronavirus. I mean, it's obviously a, a time of enormous disruption. Some are seeing it as as opportunity, but they're also asking for forbearance. They're asking uh, landlords to give them a break. I'm sure you saw that Cheesecake Factory headline this week that they're saying, <laughs> this is a publicly traded company. It's a, it's a star anchor tenant of some of the last desirable malls left in the United States, effectively saying that we're not going to pay rent come April 1st. Right, right. And it's, it's just so brazen. It's just so amazing. You know, it, it actually is going to happen on April Fool's Day. They're just not going to send in their rent. 
Um, it's funny in a lot of ways, but it's also a real sort of signal that what we're going through um, in terms of rent, in terms of basic utilities and bills and, and costs of, of doing business are completely interrupted in unprecedented ways. Well, Adam, how do you get your head around the Starbucks phenomenon? I was always skeptical. I think in high school when, uh, you know, the, the person who sat next to me, Sabrina, comes in with this enormous cup of, of latte or something in the early 90s and said she paid $3 for it. I said, you're crazy. Uh, obviously becomes a, a Dow component type uh, uh, company with international heft and is ubiquitous. And I think about, you know, when you talk about senior citizens and not minding the plastic chairs or the 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 harsh lighting of a McDonald's that it's kind of a communal area in various Korea towns and various parts of America for Gen X and Gen Y I think that that Starbucks serves that purpose. Right, right, absolutely. It is it is an upwardly mobile version of these third places that people go to to sort of hang out, talk, work on their laptops, um, take a business meeting, um, you know, anytime someone gets an email for meeting up for a coffee, um, in a lot of places that'll just be in the Starbucks and, uh, it has taken on that place. And it's, it's interesting because it, Starbucks is, um, has, has really effectively made itself into this, this image of a, a you know, of an upwardly mobile place to be. And fast food places have, have tried to emulate it. If you go into some of the new fast food places, Wendy's redesigned their stores and they all kind of look suspiciously like a Starbucks. Um, they have these high top counters and they have these plugs everywhere for people to plug in their devices and recharge. Um, it's not, they're not fixed tables in the same way that they used to be. So uh, a lot of, a lot of uh, quick service places are, are kind of glomming onto this successful model and trying to, trying to copy it a little bit because it's been such a successful um, sort of model to, you know, to see come into the mainstream. And similarly, I was skeptical when I saw them installing these drive-throughs or retrofitting locations. If it's a bottleneck-prone situation where people have all these esoteric orders and baristas are trying not to get burnt, and somebody is uh, giving a, a, a cup back and saying you made it incorrectly, so you're doubling their work by making them be mindful of the people coming through the drive-through and then having to, anyway. Pull all that back, suddenly the drive-through itself has become indispensable. I think if you look at the thousands and thousands of Starbucks right now, there's some of the, uh, you know, again, this drive-through business is what they have left. Most of them in, in lockdown states have shut down the cafe itself. And they've, you know, used to be that their food business was a kind of a throwaway thing. They'd have some stale egg salad or cheese sandwiches. And now it's really desirable food and croissants and everything. And, uh, the way they've had to contort in this motion, I, I went and did a Starbucks order. I tried to do it through the drive-thru on my app, and they brought out the credit card reader. They're trying to make it as contactless as possible um, to deliver as much volume as possible. I wonder kind of you know, what the tipping point was for these executives when they realized we have to offer app ordering, we have to offer um, – we have to – look at this in, in multi-dimensions, that people have to be able to come in and no longer just be able to stand in line and order, but if they put something in on their app, it has to be ready when we come in. And we need those baristas to multitask and work the drive throughs Well, I know Starbucks in particular has seen, obviously, huge gains from having a loyalty program. And it's not just f the frequency that people use the loyalty apps um, across the board. It's also 
they tend to order more online when they use an app than they do in person. Um, it's almost as if the money is less less real, yeah. less tangible that way, which is which is really interesting, you know, consumer psychology bit. So that's one aspect of it that's fascinating, and and the drive through um, as a as an image of a drive through. Drive-thrus became declassé not so long ago. Um, last year, Minneapolis became the largest city to ban the construction of new drive-thrus um, because there are all these sort of adjacent issues to having a drive-thru that people say, well, there's pollution or there's litter or it's unsafe for pedestrians. So there are all these different facets of it. It's bad, you know, curbing emissions. Um, but... A place, you know, a place that bans drive-throughs now looks extremely foolish because the the ultimate convenience of them is is coming right back into you know in, into contrast versus the alternative, which is either not being fed or standing in a long line with a lot of social distancing, trying to get your order quickly. Hmm. I'm also thinking about Sonic, which has kind of made a, a, a retro appeal to the whole drive-through thing, where they bring it out for you is. I was on said Broad Street again, and that Sonic was packed, as is you know one of the huge insurgents in the industry, Chick-fil-A, which I think the stat a few years ago with a fraction of the stores that KFC has, it, it, it far outsells KFC in terms of fried chicken. The one huge Chick-fil-A here on West Broad Street in Central Virginia has three separate drive through lines during the time of coronavirus. I counted at one o'clock driving past it that there were something like 47 cars with people with iPads um, really greasing the skids to a, a flawless transaction, you know, getting something on the iPad saying you can pay at the window or you could tap your thing on this. Uh, if, if there's a bottleneck at the very end, they will push them into the parking lot and bring out some bags with a, with a cookie as a bonus. Chick-fil-A is clearly one of the most nimble operations. I mean, but it's part of, part of being small-ish and private is that um, you have the capacity to kind of be flexible and really train your staff in a way that that's harder when you have kind of a, a, a more disparate kind of franchise model at play. And, you know, that stat about uh, KFC versus Chick-fil-A is amazing. I think it's less than less than half the number of KFC outlets um, in, in the Chick-fil-A system. And they're also closed one day a week and they outgross KFC in terms of sales. Um, they've really just figured out how to make operations work. And so part of it is the in inline ordering, which, you know, used to be something that you would experience when you go into the store physically. Um, but now in, in this sort of extended drive through line era that we're sort of going through right now, you're seeing it physically in drive throughs as well. And they've got the system figured out and they are so fast and so good. It's really, uh, you know, you have to you have to envy it. You know, and you talk, you 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 just mentioned it that drive-throughs up until recently were looked at as kind of declassé. A McDonald's for a long stretch in the aughts was looked at as, you know, oddly enough, it used to own Chipotle, right. which uh, it's just you know was a category killer and a category definer, and it spun it off, uh, and it was looked at as a value trap for the longest time. But they had a renaissance. They served breakfast all day, and again, putting it in sharp relief is how bizarre is it that you can say that McDonald's right now is a systemically important store. Uh, namely this uh, headline that you brought to my attention, McDonald's is pushing an ordering system invented for truckers as 1.8 million drivers struggle to find food amid the coronavirus pandemic. There's this article in Business Insider 
Coronavirus outbreak has shuttered restaurants and truck stops where truck drivers typically eat and rest. Uh, some fast food locations are drive through only, but that still blocks America's nearly 2 million truck drivers from getting food. McDonald's wrote in an open letter to truck drivers that they're pledging to keep their stores open to truck drivers and accommodate them. Um, that's, again, am I overstating that this is now a systemically important company, this, this kind of minimum wage fast food operation? Right. That's the one thing about McDonald's that, um, you know, as much as people hate it, um, or claim to hate it, they still eat there. You know, on a given day, 1% of the entire world will eat at a McDonald's um, in normal circumstances. Wow. That's 68 million people, um, which is a mind-boggling statistic. Uh, another independent survey says that the Golden Arches is more recognizable around the world than the Christian Cross, um, mm. which is, again, a wild thing to think about. And yeah, it, it's fascinating to think about fast food as this institution Um it is a place where, you know, 96% of Americans go on a yearly basis, which is more than the people who participate on the Internet. So as a, as a place for people to go, it is an extremely normal thing. And that takes on a special meaning in a time of crisis where the only normal thing you can do, basically, um, that has been relatively untouched by this crisis is go through a drive-thru and get a bag of fries, you know? It's, it, is, it is funny to think about that. And yet, is it a stretch to say, like, McDonald's employees, and including Walmart employees, a lot of service sector employees, minimum wage-centric employees, are disproportionately dependent on, say, uh, SNAP benefits, food assistant benefits, Medicaid, that there is this kind of a sousant of public profits. McDonald's is a very successful stock, publicly traded. And that kind of a socialized risk that society is taking up some of the tab. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we're, we're really seeing it with this crisis. Um, there are several walkouts have been taking place, uh, place at, at certain uh, fast food chains across the country because workers are, they don't have sick pay. They don't have sick leave. So if you're in a situation where you have to decide, you know, am I going to make rent or, or, or buy groceries or am I going to go into work even when I'm not feeling 100%? or I need to take care of somebody in my family who may not be well, um, that takes on obviously a magnified risk given the, the state of um, in the coronavirus as a pandemic and, and the fears we have about our health. And so the system itself is really kind of revealing itself for its flaws as we kind of contend with the health of, of workers and the sort of impossible situation they're placed in in dangerous position um, when they don't have access to paid leave or sick leave. Indeed, McDonald's announced, uh, you know, during the opening innings of the crisis, that it would provide two weeks of paid sick leave to employees who contract coronavirus. But that offer applies only to workers at its corporate-owned U.S. restaurants. Franchisees reportedly operate more than ninety percent of the fourteen thousand McDonald's in the United States. So McDonald's workers are asking the company, or pleading with the company, the world's second-largest employer, to ensure that all workers receive paid sick leave, be it for coronavirus or any other medical condition. There is a problem with this, though, that if, you know, there, as, as Judy Conti, Government Affairs Director of the National Employment Law Project, said, there are a few things more important right now than making sure people who are sick stay at home from work. And as long as low-wage workers won't get paid if they don't go, they will often have no choice. Right. We're looking at this paradigm. It's, this extends to Uber and Lyft drivers, gig worker, um, the gig economy on the whole ha has basically no protections for the workers. 
And so they have, um, you know, these big companies that have this sort of legal deniability that they they don't actually control the wages, they don't actually control the schedules. Therefore, they're they're kind of absent uh, responsibility of, of of doing things like offering sick pay and sick leave in a lot of instances. They, they can only do it for their company stores. Um, and so, yeah, this really this really stands out as a problem. And this is service workers in particular. This is um, only about half of service workers have access to sick pay or sick leave. And those are people who are actually coming into contact with consumers as part of the work. The work requires them to interact with people. And that really that really is a dangerous paradigm for us um, as, you know, as customers in stores, as much as it is for workers trying to sort out whether or not they um, go to work or stay home or call out to take care of somebody. So the industry, the, the knock on it has always been that it is what it is. It's a, it's a foot in the door. Anybody can do it. You don't need a high school diploma. Uh, the interview is very quick. The, the turnover rate is so high that I don't mean for it to sound as mercenary as, you know, you're just going through Dixie cups or paper plates, but it's understood. I mean, unless you're one of these uh, true hardworking people who ends up becoming CEO of McDonald's, he's worked 35, 40 years through the system, uh, you know, we're we're kind of uh, we're using one another. You're using us. We're using you. Uh, so it's understood that um, if you become difficult or nettlesome, that I can replace you with someone else. Can you still assume that and an, an affordable worker in this kind of environment? Absolutely. I mean, this, the paradigm itself has changed in in wild ways in the last couple of decades. I mean. The, the McJob wasn't a pejorative until, you know, the late 90s when I think Merriam-Webster added it to their dictionary as, as a way to talk about, you know, a shorthand for a dead-end job. In the, old, in the old days, people who work in the industry like to talk about them a lot. You know, Jeff Bezos is the world's richest person, and he used to work the Saturday shift at McDonald's. There are so many, you know, anointed high-profile people who have worked in the fast food kingdom who have come about, you know, uh, these were their first jobs and turned into major success stories because they were taught, you know, the character building work and, and, and the importance of cashing a check and following orders and things like that. And that's not really the case anymore. The average fast food worker is anywhere between 26 to 29 years old. It's not a teenager working for pocket money anymore. So it's, it's much more fraught to say, you know, this, the, the importance of, of uh, benefits and protections and all kinds of um, sort of structures in place to help workers doesn't apply to this industry because they're teens. It's not true anymore. And we're really seeing it today with... Um, all of all of the issues that are facing us with um, with coronavirus and the pandemic, but but also you know greater labor issues as unemployment rates shoot up, um, as we're looking at you know the likelihood, obvious likelihood of a recession and all of the fallout from that. How are people going to be protected in this moment? Nationally, we see that just twenty five percent of food service workers uh, receive paid sick days. That's according to federal data. Uh, the National Employment Law Project. Uh, says that industry-wide changes are needed to prevent the ongoing spread of COVID-19. Uh, and to that end, you did see uh, a walk-off in, was it late February, a Chipotle uh, group of New York City workers walking off the job last week. I always was marveled at, at some of the lines you see at a typical midtown Chipotle in Manhattan. kind of blows the mind, the uh, 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 
you know, the assembly line nature of it, the line going out the door. Uh, these uh, workers walked off the job, calling on fast casual chain to comply with the city's paid sick leave law. Even if you call off, you will receive retaliation in some way, a Chipotle employee told uh, the site The Goods. At my store, it's confusing on how to even get sick leave. To them, if you call out, you're sabotaging their day and their chance of making money. Um, where do you look at Chipotle in the grand scheme of thing? I mean, I, this is, I, I look at this as a... I remember at the turn of the century, my brother was in college in Washington, D.C., and he took me to a Chipotle in DuPont Circle, and it kind of a light went off, like, oh, this is it. This is what Taco Bell couldn't do for me. Right. That this has become a huge player in the group, and it seems like uh, so many workers are trying to get to something. It's called the fight for $15, that that minimum wage, that living wage. Exactly. What's what's fascinating to me is that places like Chipotle, the fast casual boom that kind of accompanied it and Panera's sort of ascension is is predicated on the idea that these aren't fast food places. This is fast casual. This is a different category. The quality of the food is better. The quality of the ingredients are better. It costs a bit more. They ostensibly treat the employees better. And a lot of that isn't really true. Uh, we're seeing um, not just with what the workers are dealing with right now, but in general, if you look at the nutritional value of the food, you can still get a, you know, 2000 calorie Italian sandwich at a Panera. You can also get a salad, but you can get that sandwich. And so on the whole, they've, they've been sort of marketing themselves as this virtuous alternative um, and using this health halo to kind of garner the love and, and sort of loyalty of uh, slightly more affluent customers. But if you kind of look at it a little more closely, it's not that much better along the lines of um, when compared to places like Taco Bell and Wendy's. Um, and that's that. That's really, uh, it's a surprise when you see how much uh, effort has gone into branding them as being different. You know, move up to the casual dining industry, which, as we discussed before, has been ravaged by this. This was kind of yesteryear's hot concept. I remember when I was in the sixth grade, people were talking about that that Olive Garden in uh, North Miami Beach where you could get just delicious pasta fagioli soup and breadsticks and, and whatnot, an unlimited salad. Indeed, now it's the largest casual dining chain in the U.S. There are eight brands, 1,800 restaurants. It announced... Um, uh, kind of in the teeth of this coronavirus epidemic, that same store sales across its restaurant plunged 21% for the week ending March 15th. So, this is a problem now that in, in parts of the country that have banned in person dining, same store sales fell 60%. And this is a financial crisis if you're a casual restaurant company. It withdrew its financial guidance for 2020, it drew down from its $750 million credit facility and suspended its dividend, which brings us back to this uh, trend that was already happening well before anybody had heard of the pandemic. Is the rise of the ghost kitchen, if you will. All these casual dining chains or fine dining chains have spent decades and decades on goodwill and marketing and customer service and uniform and everything else. That's all out the door. It's all become at best a kind of a, a, a curbside pickup business, a delivery business. And indeed, uh, venture capital is backing these concepts that co-locate in an anonymous warehouse kitchen in the suburbs and deliver to maybe 20 restaurants. Right. The rise of the ghost kitchen as a phenomenon in 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 dining is um, kind of a shocking turn of events. It, it, it's it's a surprise, and it also just seems so obvious given the way that everything else is going in terms of delivery, in terms of ordering on apps, um, and 
real estate, real estate in urban centers, as people have been returning to urban centers, as, as housing has has gone limited, um, there are so many issues at play when you when it comes to operating in a major urban center. What I think is interesting, fast food also, um, in lieu of having drive-throughs, uh, some of the urban Arby's and um, sort of city-based Chick-fil-A's offer office catering, which is, mm. you know, I would love to have an office that would let, let us order uh, Arby's for, you know, a meeting of 40 people. Um, maybe someday I'll find that employer. But um, it is funny to, um, to think about all these ways that companies are, are sort of supplementing through these kind of gimmicky, um, tech-centric, opportunistic ways. And a ghost kitchen is, is a crucial sort of part of that um, equation now. Well, let's drill down a little bit deeper into casual dining itself. I used to be a big fan. I mean, people know I blow all sorts of kisses to the Olive Garden on social media. I was infamous in high school, Adam, that, you know, if you if you were dating Robin Farzad, I was liable to spend $50 on a date at the Olive Garden. Like, I was going to go all out. Like, bring bring out the flask of, uh, you know, $3 chuck and, uh, uh, you know. I'll, I'll use my fake ID and everything, but I digress as I normally do. I'm citing the Wall Street Journal. It's saying sales at casual dining restaurants were already sluggish before the pandemic hit. Consumers had been gravitating toward takeout, delivery, and newer restaurant brands. Darden was one of the most prominent restaurant chains to refuse to partner with third-party delivery apps, arguing that companies such as DoorDash and Grubhub diluted profits and interfered with its connection to customers. Now, Darden is trying to add delivery at its hundreds of restaurants through its own employees, including some who normally work as servers. Darden's restaurants are serving a more limited carryout menu and handing off meals to customers who pull into restaurant chain parking lots. The company said its to-go sales were up 20% with last year. But that still doesn't take kind of this, this the shackles of the, the physical infrastructure. You have enormous facilities. I'm struck, you know, the last time I was at an Olive Garden is... Uh, I, I was greeted by a server. I was walked to my table, and there's a tablet there for me to order and for me to pay with my credit card. And that kind of justifies the experience and the ticket. Some people are into it. It's sort of whether you whether you walk into a store and you see a kiosk to, you, where you can physically order right then and there without interacting with a person and customize how you wish, and whether you actually want to talk to a person, hear what the specials might be, or... Um, what what's happening um, in the restaurant in general? Uh, it's it's a funny part of the movement, and some places are looking to ban ghost kitchens because they uh, they actually um, interfere with local restaurants. And you're seeing the infiltration of tech. This is another example of you know the tablets arriving, and you can order however you want at a at a place like Olive Garden um, without really interacting with a single person. The automation aspect of it is you know becoming a norm in all these strange little ways um they used to talk about automated cashiers and then automated burger flippers but really they're putting the work um you know almost on the consumer to kind of handle most of the service aspect and then hopefully still leave a tip and uh you know it's bizarre but it's uh i mean hopefully it still summons the romance of those high school days for you <laughs> no, no, it really doesn't. <laughs> I wish it did. I've been trying to give them a chance for years. You know, they used to own Red Lobster. They used to have a, a various portfolio of brands. And unless you go really upscale on it, uh, it's hard to get me to, to 
to hand over that ticket if you're not including the experience with it. But I understand they're hit on food costs, they're they're hit on labor costs. There's been a shortage, and um, it's kind of innovate or die at this point. Uh, I would like to cite one of these pieces that you wrote an excerpt for your book in The Atlantic, which which you you used to be a staff writer. According to Gallup, some 80% of Americans eat fast food on at least a monthly basis and 96% of Americans annually. No other institution, not libraries or gyms or the collective houses of worship is that popular. Not even the internet comes close to garnering that much loyalty or participation as fast food. I love this line. On a descending spectrum of American certainty, it goes something like death, premarital sex, fast food, and income taxes. The U.S. is and remains a fast food nation. And this isn't simply because quick service restaurants are purveyors of deliciously narcotic and obesogenic foodstuffs. It's because it's easy to build rituals in places where everyone is welcome. Well, let's look ahead on this. I don't know how short-lived this pandemic will be, but it throws into question the entire, uh, you know, human commons aspect of, of, you know, I know that I like to go to a certain Starbucks or a Chick-fil-A where I bump into people. Uh, that's, uh, that's on serious pause for some time. Right, right. One of, the, one of the surprising elements about spending a lot of time in fast food restaurants uh, across the country is, is seeing that these are places where community builds. It's, it's a really low barrier to entry. You just have to buy a cup of coffee maybe. And you can sit and you can see people. And, you know, on a given, on a given Sunday morning, you will see people on their way to church or leaving church or nursing a hangover or taking somewhere, uh, taking, taking um, the kids to go out for breakfast or uh, custody exchanges, all kinds of things happening in the dining room of a local fast food joint. And, there are actual groups of people that, you know, lay claim to certain booths every day, you know, in, in urban centers and in rural places. Uh, and that that is really an unexpected part of the uh, of fast food. I don't think a lot of people necessarily see is the community aspect of it. And it is sad to see that come to a pause because for some for some people, if you're a senior, you don't want to be sectioned off by age at a senior center or, you know, have to take a bus to a, to a library that's a few miles away when you could just walk to a, a McDonald's around the corner from where you live. And so these places really function as community centers. Um, so the fact that the dining rooms are closed is meaningful. It, it's, uh, it, it really speaks to a lot of isolation that's only going to be amplified, particularly for people who live alone. And that's uh, a, lot of, a lot of older Americans. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Adam Chandler, author of Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom. Adam, I want you to look into your crystal ball and kind of, uh, you know, tell us how this is going to shape an industry that has always changed, sometimes violently. We've had uh, commercial real estate collapses that have killed chains. They come and go. They uh, they get subsumed into other chains. Um we know that there's regional variation. For example, many people in SoCal wouldn't be caught dead at a McDonald's. They want to be at an In-N-Out burger, even if it takes 40, 40 minutes to get your food. There are people in Texas who are particular to Whataburger. Um, you know, you, you go all around the country, whether it's Chick-fil-A or Cookout. Um, fast food, you think, will survive. But what are going to be some of the lessons out of this? For, for example, for starters, do you think that Finally, there's going to be public opinion or some sort of creeping unanimity for a living wage or a $15 minimum wage. Well, I can't predict that it'll happen, but I, cert- I certainly hope so. I think, I think that we are going to kind of 
have a reckoning where we look at all the vulnerabilities that have come out as a result of um, this pandemic striking the, striking the economy. There are so many people who have had to make so many difficult choices and that should hopefully factor into future calculus. I think especially fast food chains are going to garner a lot of goodwill by virtue of staying open. Um, and they're also going to get a black eye for, you know, worker protests and, and issues like sick pay and sick leave. I think that that's hopefully something that will cause reexamination. But, you know, kind of zooming out, fast food's always kind of adapted to the different tastes and trends and social conditions. The reason we have fast food is because the interstate highway system was built after World War II and the suburbs were built and there were commutes and there were dual income households. All of these factors kind of created fast food. And so I assume whatever whatever form America takes after this and the, the world around it, um, there will be uh, adjustments and, and calculations and, and sort of um, reformatting of, of the systems to, uh, you know, I guess fit whatever world we're in once this whole thing subsides. And uh, I'm, I'm curious to see what that's going to look like. I, I really have no, no idea just yet. Adam, are you in Manhattan right now? Are you in Brooklyn? I'm just moved out of Brooklyn. I'm actually in Yonkers, which is just north of the city. So illustrate the scene for me in the city. Well, when were you last in Manhattan? I mean, from I have a, a good friend of mine is uh, sister is a nurse at Sloan Kettering. She's describing uh, the, the, the kind of the sense of fear and loathing on the subway trains for service workers or essential workers who have no choice in this most densely packed U.S. city, uh, which is, uh, uh, you know, almost ground zero for the coronavirus epidemic in the United States, the pandemic. What's the mood? What's the scene? Because there's this duality to it. On the one hand, you're trying to avoid people and you're trying to self-quarantine and stay at home. On the other hand, you cannot live without the seamless driver, without the Grubhub or Postmates person, without the, say, the undocumented immigrant who's delivering your Chinese food or who's bringing it across town on a bike while wearing a, a, an N95 mask. Right. The scene, uh, and this was as recently as last week, there, there's, a, there's a stressful solidarity. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, there really is a scene of people really trying to do their best and to be respectful um, of, of a difficult situation, but also continue to get things done. There, there isn't a lot of, um, there isn't a kind of space to be precious in this moment. And you really see that around. Uh, people are in grocery stores being shockingly polite to each other and, and spacing out and trying to do their best. And, you know, there, there are still people who are trying to go about having a normal life and, maybe with a little bit more disregard for, for, the, for the standards than there should be. So it's the mix of New York that you're used to. But, um, you know, broadly, you see people kind of banding together at, at, in six feet increments and um, trying to be conscientious. And it's, it's meaningful, um, given how serious a toll it's taking on New York City. So much of your book is kind of predicated on, you know, it's pegged back to the Eisenhower interstate highway system and uh, the drive through, the drive up scene, the, 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 the milkshake and fries in your car and everything. And if I take the obverse of it is this densely populated uh, city where everybody is seemingly dependent right now on delivery drivers and people who can bring it to your house and doormen and various uh, points along the way. What, what can we extrapolate from what's happening now in New York with the service industry that we're going to kind of 
learn best practices of across the country? Well, I think uh, the specific issues that that people are are sort of zeroing in on are how do you safely receive delivery? Um, how do you minimize the potential impact not just for the consumer but for for the delivery person? You know, carrying the food and um, how do you manage all of this risk? And a lot of interesting things are happening with you know contactless delivery and and leaving specific ordering instructions. Um, of where to leave something and how to how to be in touch with with a customer, it, it almost personalizes it personalizes it in a way because every everything is a little bit more in consideration than it was before, and so hopefully this will make people perhaps see nameless, faceless people who are making the food and delivering the food as as um, people who need protection who and who need help. I hope that this kind of inspires people to reconsider how difficult the job of catering, you know, to the whims of millions of people in a, in a sort of densely populated space uh, can be, even when there's just bad traffic, much less a pandemic. And uh, hitting the tape is news that fast food chain Wendy's said it would defer rent and ease royalty and marketing fee payments for franchisees. Uh, it reported... Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's pretty stunning to look at the numbers. It said uh, that the company said same restaurant sales in the weekend in March 22 fell about 20%. Analysts had expected 4% growth in same store sales for the quarter ending March. Um, you know, the company joins a list of fast food operators who are providing some relief to franchisees, including Dunkin'. We talked about McDonald's. Uh, Wendy's CEO says this is an unprecedented time, and we are focused on the actions where we can make a positive difference. Ah, uh, boy, I am wondering, you know, thinking back to all this and, and the thought of New York is how much of the industry and, and, you know, the last time I was inside a McDonald's itself next to Fort Lauderdale Airport when I was visiting my parents in Florida is it was a, uh, I wouldn't say a Logan's Run type experience, but I, I dealt I dealt with an ATM effectively. I walked in, there was a manager who looked at me from the back and says, I can't really help you. You have to deal with the machine. It's self-explanatory. You have a credit card. There is a Purell dispenser right next to it. Um, I thought, wow, that's a brave new world. And I've also come to expect that at Wawa. When I expect a sandwich, you're not having human-to-human interaction. They induce you to either go on the app or to do it in-store on their machine and ditto sheets. And I'm wondering how much of this industry is going to further automate into this. It almost brings to mind, Adam, the era of the automat. If you go to mid-20th century New York, where you'd have these coin-operated windows uh, you know, decidedly, you know, faceless operations where people would be putting pieces of pie or fried chicken into these things. If you go to Japan, it's certain, certainly more of a vending machine economy. Are you hearing whispers of this? Well, the the automated aspect of it, and first of all, let me just say, first of all, poor Wendy's, uh, they just launched their breakfast. So um, they sunk millions and millions of dollars into ad campaigns and all these new products and all this new rollout for for their breakfast and now they are reporting these terrible sales. Um, but uh, in, terms of, in terms of the automated experience, it, it really kind of, it shows how cyclical that all of this is. Um, fast food was an innovator in, in the 1940s and 50s because they got rid of servers and they got rid of plates and utensils and, 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 and um, real cups and dishwashers. And they just kind of served food, you know, through a window with, you know, a wrapper and and paper cups and things you could just throw away when you were done with them. 
And so the fact that we are seeing uh, kind of harkening back to this era of automation uh, kind of returning now shows that, you know, there is nothing new under the sun. We'll probably see newfangled kind of cashiers that are automated uh, landing in. In some ways, this is what customers want. They, they, they don't want to interact with a person necessarily. They want to be able to customize their order. They think it's quicker. Um, if they have a very specific order, they don't have to explain every minute detail. Um, and so that's, that, that kind of speaks to what some consumers want. And there are a lot of other consumers who hate, who hate using the machines, who don't know how to use them and who get lost and confused. I'm definitely one of them who gets lost and confused at times. Um, but it is, uh, something that you should expect to see more of, especially as this industry tries to rebound from this pandemic. Um, they're going to probably lean more on technology than they are on the cost of labor um, to get things done, having fewer employees around, probably having fewer hours of service. You know, those 24-hour stores, I could see cutting back um, just because those are generally... It's a branding exercise to have a place that's 24 hours, but during those dead hours from, you know, three to six, um, where you don't necessarily see the kind of foot traffic that you would normally get, uh, I could see those being cut out. So it's interesting to, uh, to note all the ways that this could go, and I definitely think automation is one of them. You know, and I also wonder if, you know, talking about this anonymous, you know, this ubiquitous broad street in the suburban corridor, the commercial... The Commercial Boulevard, you know what I'm talking about, that has all the car dealerships, sure. the Waffle House, the various McDonald's. Time was there would be a Subway sandwich shop and maybe a mom-and-pop sandwich shop here or two, but now there's Subway, there's Jersey Mike's, there is, um, you know, what is the, uh, Jimmy John's, mm-hmm. there's uh, Firehouse Subs. There seems to be, and, and, and indeed this is the lament of a lot of people in the markets that have said capital has been too cheap for too long, no shortage of brands that have come in and thrown in a lot in terms of uh uh, brand building, uh, color scheme. Um, uh, well, we we have non-nitrate meats and the like and like and like. And and you you just wonder if this kind of new normal can sustain that many brands doing essentially the same thing. It's really fascinating to to think about uh, how how much these uh, these restaurants do with sort of the same material. Even the even the limited time offerings are kind of within a relatively small frame of ingredients. And, and it's just kind of the recapitulation of new ideas uh, uh, that are repackaged old ideas um, coming back again. There's definitely a saturation of these chains and uh, e- there will be a huge condensing after this. I, there's no doubt about that. A lot of these places are, are going to close locations that were underperforming and perhaps we're just kind of getting a foothold in and that would be, uh, you know, just one one sort of piece of the puzzle of what of what fast food is going to look like after this, and that that extends to dining, you know, casual dining and fast casual as well. We're going to see a lot of changes happening as these places that haven't necessarily been able to differentiate themselves, um, and a lot of that will take place. Uh, the ones that remain will try to differentiate themselves even further. You know, social media has been a huge aspect of it. Um, Wendy's social media, Taco Bell social media are hilarious sure. and strange and bizarre. Yeah. And that's built a lot of brand loyalty uh, in its own sort of way. The way that you perceive the brand as being 
somebody that really gets you, someone that's your, a friend of yours. That's something that, that, that chain restaurants in particular can do because they're inherently so accessible. The food is so accessible. The idea of it is, has no errors about it, you know? And that's, that's one of the reasons why I think when Chipotle initially had its troubles, people weren't itching to go back to Chipotle when they had all these foodborne illness scares because there wasn't really a loyalty to Chipotle. It was more just, they built this brand off of not being fast food, but now they've come to understand that they have their own image to kind of cultivate. And I think that's, sure. that's we're going to see more of that. You know, and I wonder if it's going to finally blur for good the the distinction between casual dining and fast casual and fast food. You know, Darden, uh, which again owns the Olive Garden, it it revealed, say, a week ago that about 60% of its restaurants were to-go only. Uh, in the course of a few days over the weekend, it switched 100% of its restaurants over to to-go only. Its rival Brinker, which owns Chili's and Maggiano's Little Italy, which have seen better days, it's now at 75 to 80% takeout and delivery. Uh, the CEO of Brinker, Wyman Roberts, said last week that the company has changed all of our messaging to let customers know about the shift. And I do wonder uh, how quickly uh, people can be deployed and how quickly it can do it on its own terms without the help of all of these gig workers. And by the way, there's going to be a surplus of gig workers now that you see first-time jobless claims skyrocket, uh, people showing up for Instacart, for Grubhub, for, for, for you know, you name it. You can task rabbit, you can gig anything in this economy, Uber Eats, DoorDash. Right. FedEx drivers, UPS drivers too. I appreciate this, Adam Chandler. I love the book. I thought it was a most opportune time to bring you on. It was uh, an excellent read, as NPR declared it one of its favorite books of 2019, Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom. Uh, how can people follow you? Oh, boy. Um, I'm on uh, <laughs> a really so bad soap opera reference, All My Chandler. Um, Adam Chandler was a famous soap opera character for about 40 years. And then right after I joined Twitter, the soap opera went off the air. So all my Chandler is my Twitter handle. It's a fast, delightful read. Drive through dreams. Pick it up. Adam Chandler, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. You can listen to this show on NPR member station VPM News 88.9 on the NPR One app, which I have been just fanboying all over. And of course, on NPR.org and on Apple Podcasts at link fulldradio.com. Stay social, but stay distant. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. 